Yes, I did make a comment about cats, and I received several responses. Uh, one was an email that began with the words, I know how much you like cats. Here's a time saver on uh, cleaning. Now, the sermon hasn't officially started, so I can say all this, okay? Here's a time saver on cleaning the commode you might like to use. Seven steps, five, six, seven steps. Step number one, lift the commode lid and put one cup of pet shampoo in the bowl. Step number two, pick up the cat and soothe them while carrying him toward the bathroom. Step number three, in one swift, smooth motion, put the cat in the commode and close the lid. You may need to stand on the lid. (laughs) Step number four, the cat will move around making ample suds. Never mind the noises, the cat is actually enjoying this. (laughs) Step five, flush three or four times. This creates a wash and rinse effect. Step six, have someone open the front door. Be sure no one's in between the bathroom and the door. Step seven, open the lid quickly. The cat will rock it out, race through the door and outside where he will dry himself off. Result, both the commode and the cat will be sparkling clean. What a great tip, huh? That was free. (laughs) And I almost missed it, but the email was signed, Yours Sincerely, The Dog. (laughs) Clever dog. Keep those emails coming, all right? Well, at a conference on climate change in 1965, held in Boulder, Colorado, evidence was presented by leading eminent scientists who supported the belief that small changes in sunlight were going to trigger cataclysmic change and events. It caught on and it uh, gained in intensity in 1966. Interest had grown. Eminent scientists were now predicting a new glaciation within a few thousand years. In other words, the earth will enter a new ice age. In a 1968 book that came out called The Population Bomb, one author wrote that the increased levels of carbon dioxide was really making it impossible to predict, but global cooling was the consensus. A New York Times headline in 1974 read, Another Coming Ice Age. Newsweek magazine in 1975 published an article. You can read it online as I did. They would love to have it back. But it carried an article supported by all of the experts about the coming freeze and how within 10 years or so, food production would not be able to keep up. All that's forgotten history now, isn't it? Now the latest rage is the coming global warming. Thanks to intense thought by environmentalists and trajectory placements on climate changes, those who seem bent on curbing human growth and development, global warming has become dogma and those that would deny it are the new heretics. One hotel I read of that's now completely green, which means it's now environmentally friendly, and of course that is the way to live today, has even replaced the customary copy of the Bible in its hotel rooms with a documentary on DVD basically announcing that humankind is responsible for ruining the planet and that global warming is unavoidable. Now, if you've been studying with me in Revelation, you may have picked up the interesting 
fact that through the tribulation period, up through it, a period of time that spells the end of the world as we know it, there happens to be oceans, rivers, lakes, wind, trees, sunshine, grass, greenery, cattle, barley, wheat, and more. All of it clearly indicating that the normal cycles and patterns of weather and seasons have continued up and through that period of time just before Christ returns to rule the planet. It's interesting, though, to to study. In fact, all of this is online and all of this is readily available. You can look at the instrumental global uh, tracking systems and you can see the charting of, of weather patterns. You can see the charting of averages in temperatures. It's interesting that the planet has, in fact, seen, on average, since 1880 now, one degree in a rise of temperature. One degree since 1880. In fact, from 1940, I looked at it myself, to 1960, you had two decades where suddenly it flattened and dipped. And there were those that put the trajectory line on that, and they claimed that in the 70s, we were going to have the next Ice Age. It's interesting, though, that in the last year, all four major global temperature tracking outlets have released data now from 2008 showing that temperatures have once again dropped. In fact, get this, the drop in temperatures in that one year alone was large enough to erase nearly all the global warming recorded over the past 100 years. Now that's an inconvenient truth. (laughs) You know, it's interesting that it recorded, 2008, you haven't heard about this, had the single fastest temperature change ever recorded, up or down. The reason for it, not what you and I emit in our carbon footprint, not CO2, Solar activity. Imagine it had something to do with the sun. All that to say the temperature of our planet is rather unpredictable, isn't it? If you lived in the 70s, you were afraid of the coming ice age. If you live now in the 21st century, you are fearful of this coming drought and, and uh, the global warming that will drive human life as we know it out of existence. Frankly, it is alarming. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. But it is alarming for those outside the body of Christ, those who do not believe that God is providentially controlling his planet for his ultimate purposes, it would be alarming, wouldn't it? Listen, the planet we know is governed by God. And he has determined, according to what we see in Scripture, that the resources of the earth will continue to sustain billions of lives until he comes to judge it. No matter what your carbon footprint is, Mankind will not alter, will not deter, will not detract, will not ruin, will not destroy earth's natural resources so given to us by God to sustain life on this little marble. The enemy of Christ has his agenda, which is to attack the creator God and the knowledge of him. He desires also to subjugate humankind to the environment. And more and more we read and hear of this agenda that's being played out by those who basically view mankind as an intruder. You are an intruder. You're in the way. You're ruining everything. 
Nature isn't given as God's gift to sustain life, provide for human benefit and pleasure. It actually becomes more important than human life, which then applies in classic form the destruction of any culture in Romans 1 where mankind denies creator God and elevates creation to the point where mankind actually becomes the slave to nature. Mankind is unable to place the rights of human life above animal life. Mankind is terrified. In fact, mankind today is nearly paralyzed by the imagined loss of natural resources, convinced that he has ruined nature, that he is the intruding species. And instead of enjoying and subjugating creation under the guidance of our benevolent creator as given to us in Genesis chapter 2, mankind is now the victim and we really ought to leave it. We ought to leave it be. Well, according to the revelation of God, as time winds down, leading to Christ's glorious reign on the earth, there is a coming season of cataclysmic events where the rumors of global cooling and the rumors of global warming will be played out in greater horror than anybody could ever imagine, as a matter of fact. The world is heading for global warming. It is heading for global cooling, all within the very same period of time. It will not be related to CO2 emissions. It will not be related to meteorites. It will not be related to carbon footprints. It will be related to the hand of God, which actually controls the environment so that it will deliver to the human race Acts of judgment one after another. And how ironic for the human race then, which idolized creation above their creator, who desired to protect the planet rather than please great providence. They will now be decimated as nature turns monstrous by the direction of God. Let's go back and discover more details of these events In Revelation chapter 16, as the tribulation period is actually beginning to face its greatest moments of judgment in its last days. Revelation chapter 16, let's pick it up at verse 8 where we left off. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat. What we have here is global warming. And it's for real. God's angel does something to the sun. We're not told exactly. Perhaps creating solar flares. The heat is intensified ever so slightly. And it has to be even ever so slightly for this planet to be inhabitable, right? We take for granted the delicate balance between earth and sun. We take for granted the way God created this earth to sustain life. Consider the fact, as I rehearsed again in my own mind and study, uh, these truths, Venus, the next planet closer to the sun than us, has an average temperature of 867 degrees Fahrenheit. That's warm, isn't it? The next planet further away from the sun than the earth averages about 85 degrees below zero. It's cold. The truth is, even the slightest increase either way, certainly with the radiation of the sun, could easily, if it were increased, raise the temperature, scientists say, of the earth by 100 degrees. 
According to the prophet Malachi, by the way, in chapter 4, verse 1, Malachi tells us there is a coming judgment from God when earth will burn like a furnace. Now, what would you want to do if the earth heated up? What would you want to do if it heated up 20, 30, 40 degrees? You'd want to take a long, cold shower, wouldn't you? You'd want to go jump in a lake or go to the ocean or live by the coast. But we've already been told that all the bodies of water have been turned into what? Blood. The Antichrist and his followers have instigated the bloodbath of Christians. They've martyred. And now the Antichrist and his followers will experience the wrath of God by having to bathe in blood or not bathe at all. Add to this bowl of wrath a natural outcome of forest fires as the earth heats up, spontaneously starting all over the planet. Christ must return soon or the planet will go up in smoke before its time. So this is added now to what will become ultimately seven bowls of wrath. These are the final acts, cataclysmic acts, events prior to the return of Christ to rule in his millennial, his 1,000 year kingdom on earth. And so far we've seen the oceans and the rivers and the lakes turn to blood. We've seen the, the flesh of those who followed after the Antichrist break out in a painful running sores and the Antichrist is unable to heal them. And now in this one, we see the son manipulated by God and his angel to intensify the output of sun's radiation and scorch planet earth. And mankind will respond much like Pharaoh of old when he faced the plagues sent by God. Look at verse 9. They, they blasphemed God. That's what they did. Who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. You would think that now they've seen enough. Let's hit our knees. We, we surrender. No, they blaspheme. And so another angel is summoned. The fifth bowl is poured out. Notice verse 10. The text tells us, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their wickedness, their deeds, their acts of sin. Can you imagine persisting in your sins when all you have is blood and sores and scorching heat? But now this one seems directed at the throne of the beast. The Antichrist. Back in chapter 13, we're told that, that Satan gave to the Antichrist his throne as his gift. That text tells us in chapter 13 that Satan gave Antichrist his power and his throne and his great authority. Here, however, the, you, you see the pitiful strength of Satan's throne. It's no match for the throne of God. God is the one who controls the universe. And now God gives the order and suddenly the lights go out. Now what do you do? I mean, what would you do if this was for real? Imagine the world plunged into darkness. Well, don't get at your cell phones and start waving them around. What you would do is, is grope out of this auditorium and you'd get out your key 
You'd press that little button to make your car honk at you so you could find it because it's dark out there too. And then you'd get in and you'd start it up. And you'd turn on the headlamps, but they would emit no light. The passive voice indicates that whatever gives light can't. Whatever it is, it won't. You, you could strike a match. You could feel the heat of the flame and burn your finger, but you would not see a flame. Imagine that. It, it is a precursor of the coming day when, when those who do not believe will be cast into outer what? Darkness. What irony. The world loved the darkness because their deeds were evil and here they cling to them and God will give them darkness. It's possible that the believers are not affected just as the Israelites were not affected when the plague of darkness invaded Egypt. The children of Israel had light. Maybe God does something like that for them here we're not told as he did in Exodus chapter 10 verse 23. But Exodus and Revelation become illustrations that those who follow Satan belong to the kingdom of darkness and those who belong to Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, belong to the kingdom of what? Light. Here is this global demonstration. You are following darkness. Believe in Christ and come into the kingdom of light. What do they do? Verse 11 says, And they blaspheme the God of heaven. Because of their pains and their sores, they did not repent of their deeds. That is, they connect what's happening to Creator God, and they say, we still don't want you. We want our sin. We want our evil deeds. We want our false Messiah. We will still worship the Antichrist. It should be a, an illustration to us that, that even with the, the demonstration of miraculous signs, could we do them? None of them would open anybody's eyes to the truth. If someone refuses the gospel, performing some miracle in front of them will not pry open their hardened hearts, not even an empty tomb that you could have gone and inspected in the first century. Instead of falling on their faces in repentance, they show that they would choose their sin. They, they choose their unbelief in Creator God. They choose the Antichrist. They, they choose the dragon. They choose the messages of the false prophet. So verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Now at this point, things change. The last two bowls prepare the way for God. And, and his son's kingdom, and, and also unleash the greatest horrors of, of all. The Euphrates is dried up. Let's expound on that for just a moment. The, the source of the Euphrates, I have learned, is the snow fields and the ice cap high up on Mount Ararat. Now, the intense heat of the fourth bowl would have melted by now that ice cap and the snow... In fact, I couldn't help but wonder, this is a rabbit trail, but I couldn't help but wonder if indeed the Noah's Ark has been frozen in the ice cap of Mount Ararat, which many believe, well now they can see it plainly because the ice cap has melted. Could it be a, an illustration of, of the world that was delivered, a warning, and an invitation 
to rescue, and the world refused. Perhaps. The Euphrates River not only plays a role in the end of human history as we know it, but in the beginning of human history. The Euphrates flowed past the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2. It's the longest river in Western Asia. It stretches 1,800 miles, starting at the ice cap that melts in the snow fields, and it ultimately empties into the Persian Gulf. Now, the melting of the snow and ice, because of global warming from the fourth bowl of judgment, would swell the Euphrates River. It would become a a rushing torrent. It would have overflowed its banks. By the way, the implication is the river of blood is now water. In fact, the text says in verse 12, the water of the great Euphrates River dried up, perhaps because of the melting snow or the ice cap, or maybe God has already reversed that particular bowl. John tells us why, however, the Euphrates was dried up. He gives us the answer to this miracle of God's administration. Look at the text. So that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Now, no doubt the swelling, raging river has swept away the the bridges that span the river. The armies of, of the east are going to make it to Jerusalem. They're, they're going to, they, they got to cross this river. They're going to gather in the plain of Armageddon, just north of Jerusalem. So God miraculously, somehow we're not told, dries out the Euphrates so that the kings and their, their armed forces can march into what effectively becomes his trap. Much like Pharaoh's army. Now how in the world would the armies of the world even think that, that they can take on God. What in the world is going on in their mind that they think, hey, if we all get together, we can take them. We can conquer them. Well, the Bible tells us in verse 13, they were deluded, how? And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three demons, unclean spirits, like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Now frogs have long been associated with the occult world. And here the demonstration of these demons is that they're seen as frogs. That doesn't mean if you have frogs, that's a bad thing. You can trade your cat in for five, and that would be fine, I'm sure. (laughs) In fact, one of the oldest goddesses of Egypt was Heka. It was a frog-headed female goddess. Can you imagine wanting to worship that? But this was the oldest goddess that we have on record of having to do with dark power demonic power. So I think it's interesting that these demons representing dark power to perform all these miracles to delude the followers of the Antichrist are seen as frogs. And here they come and they deceive the armies of the world with great signs and wonders. They convince the world that whatever God happens to be doing all of these awful things, we can beat him. And so they march The text looks to the future and the last world war as world empires gather together to fight against God and his people. Now tucked away inside this scene is an encouragement to those who've come to faith in Christ 
after the rapture, during the tribulation, that number we know in the millions. Here's the encouragement. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. In other words, he's saying, stay prepared. Walk about in the clothing you've been given by God. This is a demonstration of the righteousness of Christ. It could perhaps be seen as, as much as the church today that's been told to put on the what? The armor of God. Keep your clothes on. Be alert. Be ready. Be ready to stand for Christ. Don't be an embarrassment should the return of Christ come. It will come at any moment. Don't compromise your lives during these horrific days. Continue to stand for Christ. God says, here, I am coming as a thief. Jesus Christ used the same expression in Matthew 24 to refer to his second coming, which we know now follows the bowls of wrath here in chapter 16. The, the Apostle Paul speaks of the day of the Lord to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, as the Lord coming as a as a thief. Now, unfortunately for most in my generation, when we hear the words thief in the night as it relates to future events, we think of the what? We think of the rapture of the church, don't we? Primarily because of a Christian film that was produced in the 70s that chronicled the life of a woman who was left behind. How many of you saw that movie? It was entitled Thief in the Night. It was about the rapture. Well, Great movie, scared a lot of people into the kingdom, but wrong title. The biblical phrase, thief in the night, does not have anything to do with the rapture. It has to do with the second coming of Christ, not for his church, but with his church as he sets up his reign on planet earth. Prior to his return, the armies of the world are gathering together to overthrow his people. And Satan knows the timing. He knows his time is running out. And he gathers them together, deceiving them, hoping to provide some sort of onslaught against the people of God and the person of God in the returning son of God. Now, what we're told in verse 16, notice there at the end that, that these kings and armies gather together to a place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. Har means mountain, and Megiddo, or Megiddo, refers to a location in northern Israel. Mount Megiddo is a small mountain located near the Mediterranean Sea. It overlooks a valley that stretches 20 miles long and 14 miles wide. It is a perfect place to serve as the command center for the, all of the armies that converge to do battle against God and his people. Some Bible scholars believe that these armies, or some of them, intend to actually battle against the Antichrist. And that may have been an early thought as they have recognized his failed rule. And his inability against this creator God that is pouring out his wrath upon the earth. But the more I've studied this particular text, it's clarified for me that, that because the demons are going out and they're performing these miracles to deceive these armies and these world leaders, they're convincing them and they seem to be converging because of demonic activity that they are indeed ultimately coming to battle against the king of kings. Now, as they gather together, the final angel steps forward in verse 17 to empty the final bowl of wrath. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, 
that is in the atmosphere. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it. And so mighty the great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away. Wow, what an earthquake. So fierce that it literally changes the topography of the earth. The prophet Haggai, by the way, wrote that at the end of the world there would be a a great earthquake. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 21. This then is that final earthquake where God literally shakes the planet. He undoes, as it were, planet earth. John writes here, If you notice that the great city was split into three parts. The great city is not Babylon, though it is considered great and its empire great. The great city tracks back to Revelation 11 where we're told that the great city is Jerusalem. And this fits perfectly with the prophecies of the Old Testament. The prophet Zechariah described the changes in Jerusalem and beyond in great detail. The Mount of Olives will be split in two. And a new valley will be created. And a spring of water will flow year-round from Jerusalem down to the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. And Isaiah adds, and because of its irrigation, the desert will blossom. This upheaval will literally elevate Jerusalem and flatten the surrounding region into a plain. Just as the judgment, by the way, of God through the flood of Noah, changed the topography of the planet. This final act of judgment will change the topography of planet Earth. In fact, some believe it will return to pre-fall conditions. Notice the changes mentioned in verse 20 again. And every island fled away. It's poetic for it just disappeared. Every island fled away. And, And the mountains, what happened to them? They're not found. What's happening? One author wrote this global earthquake. One believing scientist added this commentary. Described in the original language as the shaking of the earth will set off every rift now well mapped by geologists. And the rifts are worldwide. The entire western coast of America will be severed. From Alaska to the southern tip of Argentina... The fault lines that take in all of southern Europe and the entire coastline of the Mediterranean, following on eastward in a broadening band of fault lines all across Central Asia, the whole of this will burst wide open when the final earthquake comes. Can you imagine that? But there is purpose in this chaos. Isaiah's prophecy will come true. Do you remember it? His prophecy of Isaiah 40 verses 4 to 5 that every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the rough grain will become a plain and the rugged terrain will become a broad valley. A believing 
Scientists added in his commentary on this global upheaval connected with the prophecy of Isaiah that God intends this judgment to not only punish mankind and it will be terrifying punishment. Can you imagine how everything will literally erupt? There won't be a building standing. But this will also prepare the earth for his coming. The effects of this worldwide earthquake will return to earth, one Bible scholar wrote, that gentle rolling topography of the world as originally created. No more will there be great inaccessible, uninhabitable mountain ranges or, or deserts. The physical environment of the millennium, the kingdom of Christ, will be a restoration of the environment and conditions on the planet prior to the judgment of Noah's flood. Isn't that amazing to ponder? Massive eruptions, terrestrial convulsions, the redistribution of land masses, mountain ranges, islands, uh, the ensuing redirection of the bodies of water. Imagine it, the surface of the planet will be changed and prepared for the coming kingdom. In fact, another author said that this may very well leave Jerusalem as the highest point on earth as the prophets suggest, making it a fitting throne for the great king who will rule for a thousand years. Is that as exciting to you as it is to me? That is absolutely amazing. But by the way, that isn't all that pounds the earth into a new form. Look at verse 21. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. Can you imagine this? Have you seen any hail lately? You watch those little pebble-sized things, it does all kinds of damage, doesn't it? It can devastate crops and put all sorts of dings into your, into your car or truck. The heaviest hailstones, as I did a little research on record, weighed two and a half pounds, fell in the mid-80s in Bangladesh, and 92 people were killed. That's two and a half pounds. Can you imagine hailstones the size of golf carts pummeling the earth? You have this massive earthquake and everything's coming loose. And then massive hailstones coming from the skies. Massive hailstones. By the way, that's sudden global cooling. Perhaps this is the way that God puts out all the fires that will be worldwide. I also thought about it as this. Perhaps it's a demonstration of Leviticus chapter 24 where those who blaspheme God were to be stoned to death. This becomes a precursor then to the fact that everyone will be judged according to the fullness of God's law and everyone apart from Christ's atoning work will face the fullness of God's wrath so it all wraps up with an earthquake with hail with a massive army and the sight of Christ who returns more details on that later but I couldn't help here but think of the fact that when God delivered the law of Moses there was what? an earthquake 
as if to let the Israelites know that the wrath of God is ever ready to judge those who break the law. When God the Son hung on the cross, God sent what? An earthquake. He shook the earth as if to let the world know that he had judged his Son on behalf of every lawbreaker. And the last time in human history where God shakes the earth, he shakes it to let it know it will indeed face the judgment of God, for they have rejected the one who bore his wrath on the cross. I thought of another element that traces through the text of Scripture. You have God delivering the law on Mount Sinai, consistently broken. Christ paying the penalty for all lawbreakers on Mount Calvary. And then the world in unbelief marching by Mount Megiddo to experience his wrath. Where he will eventually send all who do not believe to a place of eternal suffering, eternal thirst, eternal fire, eternal darkness. Darkness was man's choice all along. Mankind refuses what the Bible calls the light of the gospel of Christ. He chooses to revere Mother Nature and the environment. He refuses the account in the Bible of this creating agent of the triune God. We know Colossians tells us is the Son of God. The very first words as he created all there is were let there be what? Light. His first words recorded. Mankind refuses to surrender to Christ who is the light of the world. He refuses the gospel of Christ, which is called the gospel of light. You know what God does? God will eventually give mankind his wish, banishing him to everlasting darkness. I notice one other point as we wrap up our study in this chapter over and over and over again in chapter 16. In the Greek language, you find the, this little word mega. We use it often for great, awesome, big. It appears over and over again in chapter 16. It begins with a great voice. You have great heat. You have a great river. You have the great day of God and this battle of Armageddon. You have a great Earthquake. You have a great city, a great empire of Babylon, and it ends with great hailstones. This is the great wrath of God punctuated by the original author as he, he dropped in continually. Great, great, great catastrophe, great anguish, this, this great judgment of God during the tribulation. And you know what? As I left the study... As I was wrapping it up in my own study, you know the words that came to my mind? For the believer, for us, were the words, Great is thy faithfulness. Aren't you glad to be on that side of great? Aren't you glad we're, we're, we're having and we will have forever the demonstration of God's great mercy? Psalm 86 his great grace, Acts 4, his great love, Ephesians 2, because we have accepted so great 
a salvation, Hebrews chapter 2. My mind went to Gabriel's introduction of, of new truth to Mary and her soon to be delivered, at least nine months from then, this virgin born son. And he said to her, He shall be great. He shall be great. And he shall be called the son of the highest. You can't get any higher than the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. You know, we're almost there. You didn't think we'd make it out of the tribulation. We're almost there where the prophecy will come true. Where Christ will descend in great splendor. And this one who is great will sit on his throne and his kingdom and and earth will see the greatness of his glory for those who refuse him. Great things will happen to them. They will be terrible in their greatness. But for those who believe in him, great things are in store. And so we who believe can come to the end of a chapter like this and experience in our hearts great joy, great security because we have had the wrath of God poured out against the Son and we have placed our faith in him. We're hiding in him. We've run to him. Now for us is this great and marvelous display of God's great glory. So for us, is it any wonder that we could say with great joy and great security and even greater anticipation, how great is our God? 